0: CHAPTER Seven. My conductor led me upstairs into a passage which took us back to the bedchamber in which I had slept during the past night, and opening the door next to it begged me to look in. "'I have my master's orders to show you your own sitting-room, sir,' said the man, and to inquire if you approve of the situation and the light. I must have been hard to please, indeed, if I had not approved of the room and of everything about it. The bow window looked out on the same lovely view which I had admired in the morning from my bedroom. The furniture was the perfection of luxury and beauty. The table in the center was bright with gaily bound books, elegant conveniences for writing, and beautiful flowers. The second table, near the window, was covered with all the necessary materials for mounting watercolor drawings And had a little easel attached to it, which I could expand or fold up at will. The walls were hung with gaily tinted chintz, and the floor was spread with Indian matting in maize color and red. It was the prettiest and most luxurious little sitting room I had ever seen, and I admired it with the warmest enthusiasm. The solemn servant was far too highly trained to betray the slightest satisfaction. He bowed with icy deference. "'when my terms of eulogy were all exhausted "'and silently opened the door for me to go out into the passage again. "'We turned a corner and entered a long second passage, "'ascended a short flight of stairs at the end, "'crossed a small circular upper hall, "'and stopped in front of a door covered with dark bays. "'The servant opened this door "'and led me on a few yards to a second. Opened that also, and disclosed two curtains of pale sea-green silk hanging before us. Raised one of them noiselessly, softly uttered the words, Mr. Hartwright, and left me. I found myself in a large lofty room with a magnificent carved ceiling and with a carpet over the floor so thick and soft that it felt like piles of velvet under my feet. One side of the room was occupied by a long bookcase of some rare inlaid wood that was quite new to me. It was not more than six feet high, and the top was adorned with statuettes in marble, ranged at regular distances one from the other. On the opposite side stood two antique cabinets, and between them and above them hung a picture of the Virgin and Child, "'protected by glass and bearing Raphael's name "'on the gilt tablet at the bottom of the frame. "'On my right hand and on my left, "'as I stood inside the door, "'were chiffoniers and little stands in boule and marquettery "'loaded with figures in Dresden, China, "'with rare vases, ivory ornaments, "'and toys and curiosities that sparkled at all points "'with gold, silver, and precious stones. "'At the lower end of the room, opposite to me, the windows were concealed, and the sunlight was tempered by large blinds of the same pale sea green color as the curtains over the door. The light thus produced was deliciously soft, mysterious, and subdued. It fell equally upon all the objects in the room. It helped to intensify the deep silence and the air of profound seclusion that possessed the place and it surrounded with an appropriate halo of repose, the solitary figure of the master of the house, leaning back listlessly composed in a large easy chair, with a reading easel fastened on one of its arms and a little table on the other. If a man's personal appearance when he is out of his dressing room and when he is past forty can be accepted as a safe guide to his time of life, which is more than doubtful, Mr. Fairley's age, when I saw him, must have been reasonably computed at over fifty and under sixty years. His beardless face was thin, worn, and transparently pale, but not wrinkled. His nose was high and hooked. His eyes were of a dim, grayish-blue, large, prominent, and rather red round the rims of the eyelids. His hair was scanty, soft to look at, and of that light sandy color which is the last to disclose its own changes towards gray. He was dressed in a dark frock coat of some substance much thinner than cloth, and in waistcoat and trousers of spotless white. His feet were effeminately small, and were clad in buff-colored silk stockings and little womanish leather slippers." Two rings adorned his white delicate hands, the value of which even my inexperienced observation detected to be all but priceless. Upon the whole, he had a frail, languidly fretful, over-refined look, something singularly and unpleasantly delicate in its association with a man, and, at the same time, something which could by no possibility have looked natural and appropriate if it had been transferred to the personal appearance of a woman." My morning's experience of Miss Halcombe had predisposed me to be pleased with everybody in the house, but my sympathies shut themselves up resolutely at the first sight of Mr. Fairley. On approaching nearer to him, I discovered that he was not so entirely without occupation as I had at first supposed. Placed amid the other rare and beautiful objects, on a large, round table near him, was a dwarf cabinet in ebony and silver, containing coins of all shapes and sizes, set out in little drawers lined with dark purple velvet. One of these drawers lay on the small table attached to his chair, and near it were some tiny jeweler's brushes, a wash-leather stump, and a little bottle of liquid, all waiting to be used in various ways for the removal of any accidental impurities which might be discovered on the coins.' His frail white fingers were listlessly toying with something which looked, to my uninstructed eyes, like a dirty pewter metal with ragged edges, when I advanced within a respectful distance of his chair and stopped to make my bow. "'So glad to possess you at limeridge,' Mr. Hartwright,' he said in a croaking voice, which combined, in anything but an agreeable manner, a discordantly high tone with a drowsily languid utterance. "'Pray sit down and don't trouble yourself to move the chair, please. "'In the wretched state of my nerves, "'movement of any kind is exquisitely painful to me. "'Have you seen your studio? Will it do?' "'I have just come from seeing the room, Mr. Fairley, "'and I assure you—' "'He stopped me in the middle of the sentence by closing his eyes "'and holding up one of his white hands imploringly. "'I paused in astonishment— and the croaking voice honored me with this explanation. "'Pray excuse me, but could you contrive to speak in a lower key? In the wretched state of my nerves, loud sound of any kind is indescribable torture to me. You will pardon an invalid. I only say to you what the lamentable state of my health obliges me to say to everybody. Yes, and you really like the room?' "'I could wish for nothing prettier and nothing more comfortable,' "'I answered, dropping my voice, "'and beginning to discover already "'that Mr. Fairley's selfish affectation "'and Mr. Fairley's wretched nerves "'meant one and the same thing. "'So glad. "'You will find your position here, Mr. Hartwright, "'properly recognized. "'There is none of the horrid English barbarity "'of feeling about the social position of an artist in this house. "'So much of my early life has been passed abroad,' "'that I have quite cast my insular skin in that respect. "'I wish I could say the same of the gentry, "'detestable word, but I suppose I must use it. "'Of the gentry in the neighbourhood. "'They are sad Goths in art, Mr. Hartwright. "'People, I do assure you, "'who would have opened their eyes in astonishment "'if they had seen Charles V pick up Titian's brush for him. "'Do you mind putting this tray of coins back in the cabinet "'and giving me the next one to it? "'In the wretched state of my nerves,' "'exertion of any kind is unspeakably disagreeable to me. "'Yes, thank you.' "'As a practical commentary on the liberal social theory, "'which he had just favoured me by illustrating, "'Mr. Fairley's cool request rather amused me. "'I put back one drawer and gave him the other "'with all possible politeness. "'He began trifling with the new set of coins "'and the little brushes immediately.' languidly looking at them and admiring them all the time he was speaking to me. "'A thousand thanks and a thousand excuses. Do you like coins?' "'Yes. So glad we have another taste in common besides our taste for art. Now, about the pecuniary arrangements between us, do tell me, are they satisfactory?' "'Most satisfactory, Mr. Fairley.' "'So glad. And what next?' "'Ah, I remember. Yes.' "'In reference to the consideration which you are good enough to accept "'for giving me the benefit of your accomplishments in art, "'my steward will wait on you at the end of the first week "'to ascertain your wishes. "'And what next? "'Curious, is it not? "'I had a great deal more to say, "'and I appear to have quite forgotten it. "'Do you mind touching the bell in that corner? "'Yes, thank you.' "'I rang, and a new servant noiselessly made his appearance.' "'a foreigner, with a set smile and perfectly brushed hair. "'A valet, every inch of him. "'Lewis,' said Mr. Fairley, "'dreamily dusting the tips of his fingers "'with one of the tiny brushes for the coins. "'I made some entries in my tablets this morning. "'Find my tablets. "'A thousand pardons, Mr. Hartwright. "'I'm afraid I bore you.' "'As he wearily closed his eyes again, "'before I could answer, "'and as he did most assuredly bore me, "'I sat silent.' and looked up at the Madonna and Child by Raphael. In the meantime, the valet left the room and returned shortly with a little ivory book. Mr. Fairley, after first relieving himself by a gentle sigh, let the book drop open with one hand and held up the tiny brush with the other as a sign to the servant to wait for further orders. "'Yes, just so,' said Mr. Fairley, consulting the tablets. "'Louis, take down that portfolio.' He pointed, as he spoke, to several portfolios placed near the window on mahogany stands. No, not the one with the green back. That contains my Rembrandt etchings, Mr. Hartwright. Do you like etchings? Yes. So glad we have another taste in common. The portfolio with the red back, Lewis. Don't drop it. You have no idea of the tortures I should suffer, Mr. Hartwright, if Lewis dropped that portfolio. Is it safe on the chair? "'Do you think it's safe, Mr. Hartwright?' "'Yes?' "'So glad. "'Will you oblige me by looking at the drawings, "'if you really think they are quite safe?' Louis? go away. "'What an ass you are. "'Don't you see me holding the tablets? "'Do you suppose I want to hold them? "'Then why not relieve me of the tablets without being told? "'A thousand pardons, Mr. Hartwright. "'Servants are such asses, are they not?' "'Do tell me, what do you think of the drawings?' They have come from a sale in a shocking state. I thought they smelt of horrid dealers and brokers' fingers when I looked at them last. Can you undertake them? Although my nerves were not delicate enough to detect the odor of plebeian fingers which had offended Mr. Fairley's nostrils, my taste was sufficiently educated to enable me to appreciate the value of the drawings while I turned them over. They were, for the most part, really fine specimens of English water-colour art, and they had deserved much better treatment at the hands of their former possessor than they appeared to have received. "'The drawings,' I answered, "'require careful straining and mounting, "'and, in my opinion, they are well worth—' "'I beg your pardon,' interposed Mr. Fairley. "'Do you mind my closing my eyes while you speak? "'Even this light is too much for them. "'Yes?' I was about to say that the drawings are well worth all the time and trouble. Mr. Fairley suddenly opened his eyes again and rolled them with an expression of helpless alarm in the direction of the window. "'I entreat you to excuse me, Mr. Hartwright,' he said in a feeble flutter, "'but surely I hear some horrid children in the garden, my private garden below.' "'I can't say, Mr. Fairley. I heard nothing myself.' Oblige me. You have been so very good in humoring my poor nerves. Oblige me by lifting up a corner of the blind. Don't let the sun in on me, Mr. Hartwright. Have you got the blind up? Yes? Then will you be so very kind as to look into the garden and make quite sure? I complied with this new request. The garden was carefully walled in, all round. "'Not a human creature, large or small, "'appeared in any part of the sacred seclusion. "'I reported that gratifying fact to Mr. Fairley. "'A thousand thanks. "'My fancy, I suppose. "'There are no children, thank heaven, in the house. "'But the servants, persons born without nerves, "'will encourage the children from the village. "'Such brats! "'Oh, dear me, such brats! "'Shall I confess it, Mr. Hartwright? "'I sadly want a reform in the construction of children.' Nature's only idea seems to be to make them machines for the production of incessant noise. Surely our delightful Raffaello's conception is infinitely preferable. He pointed to the picture of the Madonna, the upper part of which represented the conventional cherubs of Italian art, celestially provided with sitting accommodation for their chins on balloons of buff-colored cloud. "'Quite a model family,' said Mr. Fairley, leering at the cherubs. "'Such nice round faces, and such nice soft wings. "'And nothing else. "'No dirty little legs to run about on, "'and no noisy little lungs to scream with. "'How immeasurably superior to the existing construction. "'I will close my eyes again, if you will allow me. "'And you really can manage the drawings? "'So glad. "'Is there anything else to settle?' "'If there is, I think I have forgotten it. "'Shall we ring for Lewis again?' "'Being by this time quite as anxious on my side "'as Mr. Fairley evidently was on his "'to bring the interview to a speedy conclusion, "'I thought I would try to render the summoning of the servant unnecessary "'by offering the requisite suggestion on my own responsibility. "'The only point, Mr. Fairley, that remains to be discussed,' I said, "'refers, I think, to the instruction in sketching "'which I am engaged to communicate to the two young ladies.' "'Ah, just so,' said Mr. Fairley. "'I wish I felt strong enough to go into that part of the arrangement. "'But I don't. "'The ladies who profit by your kind services, Mr. Hartwright, "'must settle and decide, and so on, for themselves. "'My niece is fond of your charming art. "'She knows just enough about it to be conscious of her own sad defects.' Please take pains with her. Yes. Is there anything else? No? We quite understand each other, don't we? I have no right to detain you any longer from your delightful pursuit, have I? So pleasant to have settled everything, such a sensible relief to have done business. Do you mind ringing for Lewis to carry the portfolio to your own room? I will carry it there myself, Mr. Fairley, if you will allow me. Will you really? Are you strong enough? How nice to be so strong. Are you sure you won't drop it? So glad to possess you at Limeridge, Mr. Hartwright. I am such a sufferer that I hardly dare hope to enjoy much of your society. Would you mind taking great pains not to let the doors bang and not to drop the portfolio? Thank you. Gently with the curtains, please. The slightest noise from them goes through me like a knife. Yes, good morning. When the sea-green curtains were closed and when the two bays' doors were shut behind me, I stopped for a moment in the little circular hall beyond and drew a long, luxurious breath of relief. It was like coming to the surface of the water after deep diving to find myself once more on the outside of Mr. Fairley's room. As soon as I was comfortably established for the morning in my pretty little studio, the first resolution at which I arrived was to turn my steps no more in the direction of the apartments occupied by the master of the house, except in the very improbable event of his honouring me with a special invitation to pay him another visit. Having settled this satisfactory plan of future conduct in reference to Mr. Fairley, I soon recovered the serenity of temper of which my employer's haughty familiarity and impudent politeness had, for the moment, deprived me. The remaining hours of the morning passed away pleasantly enough in looking over the drawings, arranging them in sets, trimming their ragged edges, and accomplishing the other necessary preparations in anticipation of the business of mounting them. I ought, perhaps, to have made more progress than this, but as the luncheon time drew near, I grew restless and unsettled, and felt unable to fix my attention on work, even though that work was only of the humble manual kind. At two o'clock I descended again to the breakfast room a little anxiously. Expectations of some interest were connected with my approaching reappearance in that part of the house. My introduction to Miss Fairley was now close at hand, and if Miss Halcombe's search through her mother's letters had produced the result which she anticipated, the time had come for clearing up the mystery of the woman in white. WUNC.